going fairly quickly. And this morning we're going to be looking at the life of Saul. Saul. Saul served as the first king of the Israelites. He, his life started well, actually, but finished terribly. There are many lessons to learn from Saul, uh, and I've titled the message, Saul, Lessons from a Tragic Life. What I want to do is, is read sections of the story about King Saul, and so we'll be going through. And uh, to start with, I'm going to read you two sections. One section from the very beginning of his reign, uh, just to show you how things started out. They actually started out very good. And then a section from pretty much the end of his reign, just to show you how things ended quite terribly. And then we'll kind of talk about the in-between as well. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this story about King Saul has been preserved in your word by you for us. And for us this morning, these are not just stories and lessons that are academic and removed. These are truths that are meant for us right where we are today. Because you are a God who rules and reigns over all time and you know us, you know all things. And Lord, you minister through your word. And so thank you for this. We ask you, God, I ask you, help me. Oh Lord, help me to teach and proclaim your word. Help us to listen. And Spirit of God, be with us in the proclamation of your word to experience you in our lives. To be touched by you and transformed by you be made more like you, Lord Jesus, empowered and refreshed in you, that we might glorify you and serve others. Thank you for your word. Thank you that this is your intention this morning as we engage your word. So help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 10, at the beginning of the reign of of King Saul, it says, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Metrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Fast forwarding to chapter 28 of 1 Samuel, near the end of his reign. It says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urm or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. Samuel had been a prophet. 
Then Samuel said to Saul, so Samuel appears, then Samuel said to Paul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. 1 Samuel 28. These two passages present a shocking contrast. And the last passage, a sad and shocking picture of the horrible decline of a once-promising life. A horrible decline is a madness, darkness, witchcraft, murder, and his life ends in suicide. This story is a true tragedy, greater than anything Shakespeare might write. Tragedy is a, a genre of literature uh, in the arts. It's, it's a, basically, it's a story that things don't turn out well in, particularly for the the main character. It's the opposite of the sort of stories that we like, right? We like the stories that turn out good. Even if there is a dark moment, in the end they turn out good. So at the end you can say, and they lived happily ever after, right? We like stories like that. I would say, I, I think I can say this, that we do that to a fault. What I mean by that is we so prefer the happy stories that we don't want to engage the tragedies. We don't like tragic stories. We don't like to hear these sorts of things. But the reality in life is that there are lots of tragic stories, aren't there? There's lots of main characters that don't turn out well in the end. There's lots of situations like that. And they're all around us. And maybe we're in one of them ourselves right now. And God has designed His Word to speak to us where we are, to speak to us in our lives. His Word is innately, automatically relevant because He's the Lord of all. He's designed His Word to minister to us, to come in and speak to us in our situations, and yes, in the tragedies of life. Whether they're around us or we are actually in one. It doesn't help to ignore tragedies. It does help to learn from them. And the Bible doesn't ignore tragedies. It, it talks about them. It's full of stories. Life is full of these stories. The difference is when the Scripture gives us these stories, they're, they're, meant, they're meant to act redemptively in our lives. They're meant to be something that we reflect on. We're to learn from them. Actually, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 this very thing. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 12 says this. Now these things happen to them as an example. Speaking of the Old Testament stories. Now these things happen to them as an example. But they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
These stories, like the story of Saul, are in Scripture for us. We are the ones who live at the end of the ages, and what Paul means by that, uh, those that live after the resurrection and ascension of Christ and before His return. This very important time in in the history of the, the world. We live in it this time. And the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture, is written down for us in this time. That's what he's saying. So this story of Saul is written for you and for me. This tragedy. That we might learn lessons. That we might take heed lest we fall. I think that helps us understand the importance and and sets us in a certain frame of mind as we engage this story. That's my desire this morning is that we would come at this story with that in mind, this frame of mind. So let's enter into this tragic story as difficult as it might feel at points. Let's enter into it fully. Let's engage our minds and our ears and our imaginations fully in this story that we might enter in, that we might from it learn some key lessons and be better for it because God's intention in this is to bring correction in our lives and redirection. To cause us to look at our own lives and to run to Jesus. That's the the bottom line here. That's what God's looking to do through stories like this. So let's do that together, looking at the the life of Saul. So first, in the story, we have impressive beginnings. Beginning of the story, Saul is presented as a very admirable figure. He, He is someone he selected uh, to be king, and he hides himself among the baggage. There's, there's baggage there, and he, he goes hides himself because, because he's reluctant. He, he's thinking, who, me, king? He, there's a humility in his life in the beginning. Uh, he's not selfishly ambitious. He's not stepping forward. Yep, I'm your new king. Everybody, look at me. He's hiding among the baggage. There's humility. There's humility in his life. And, and then he is brought out of the baggage by word of the Lord, and he stands up, and basically Shaquille O'Neal stands up in the middle of the people. And everyone's like, whoa, look at this guy. Samuel directs their attention to him. Is there anyone like him? He's impressive. He's really impressive. He's this big, tall guy, head and shoulders above everybody else. He's, he, he's the sort of guy that, you know, you'd see him, he'd just have a natural gravitas. And just being tall. And, and that's the sort of man. And everybody is so impressed by him, they shout, long live the king. Long live the king. He's, he's impressive. Now, it's not just physically, actually. If you read in the storyline, there are some things that go on in his life that are pretty impressive, too. He, he encounters God in a powerful way in the beginning. It says that he gets a new heart. That he meets Samuel. In the, it's early on in the story. He meets Samuel. And his heart is changed. He's turned into a new person. He's a different person than than what he was. And then it talks later in the story, he he ends up falling among some prophets, and he ends up prophesying with these prophets, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And so he's this impressive leader. He's humble. He's physically impressive. He's pure-hearted and Holy Spirit-anointed. He's quite a leader when he starts out. Very impressive. And then it goes on in the story, he very effectively and dramatically mobilizes the entire Israelite army to fight against uh, their enemies. There, was, there were enemies who were besieging one of the cities. And they, th- they, they were going to 
basically they said we're going we're gonna to cut out the eye of everybody in the city is what they said. And so this city said, help. Saul mobilizes the whole nation, like 100,000 uh, troops or more, together zealously, effectively, and they go and they fight the enemy, they conquer, they free the city. It's an impressive victory. There hasn't been a victory quite like that one in a little while. So very early on, he demonstrates that he is very decisive and effective as a leader. Things look really good. And, and in the storyline, we're to understand that had it continued this way, he might have been the father of an eternal dynasty, like David is later. Things looked really good in the beginning. There were impressive beginnings for Saul. Very impressive beginnings. But the point in this story, and the point in highlighting how impressive he is, is for us to understand that impressive beginnings aren't as important as impressive endings. Impressive beginnings aren't as important as impressive endings. It's not just how impressive you are and how good it looks in the beginning. It's how it goes in the long haul that matters. Who you are over the course of time that matters. Hear that lesson. Hear that lesson from the life of Saul. Hear that lesson for us. It's the long haul that matters. Not to discourage us in impressive beginnings, but to recognize that impressive endings matter a lot more. Jim and his new wife graduated from Bible college and they were excited about living for Jesus. They moved from their home state of Minnesota all the way to Virginia to be involved in groundbreaking children's ministry. The early beginnings of Christian television. Through this medium, they were able to reach millions with the truth of the gospel. One success followed another for Jim and his wife. And over time, they got their own show, which at its peak ran on 100 stations with 12 million regular viewers. Over time, though, their theology and teaching drifted from sound, biblical, Christ-centered truth to what's known as prosperity gospel. One thing, over time, led to another. Eventually, Jim was convicted of numerous fraudulent business dealings, and he was imprisoned. It turns out that he had made fraudulent promises to donors. He had been embezzling money, spending lavishly, and committing sexual, serious sexual sin. As a result of all this, he was convicted on 24 counts and sentenced to 45 years in federal prison. His wife divorced him. Everything came crashing down. You may recognize Jim by his last name and his wife's name, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Impressive beginnings don't guarantee impressive endings. They can be sabotaged with the testing of time when the testing of time reveals faulty foundations and rotten roots. That's part of the lesson of King Saul's life. So, so what do we do in light of that? If impressive beginnings aren't as important as what happens over the long haul and how you respond to testing, what do we do? Well, I think one thing we do is we need to adjust our timelines. We need to adjust our timelines in life. We, we live in a world that's measured by seconds and minutes rather than decades and lifetimes. Think about in our media consumption, newspapers and even blogs have gone by the wayside for 140 character tweets and, and attention-grabbing photos that we can look at and read in a moment. The conventional wisdom actually on websites 
is that you have to build your website around capturing someone's attention in 59 seconds. Otherwise, they're lost. They won't, they won't stay on your site. The conventional wisdom for videos is that you don't want anything longer than two minutes. Because if it's longer than two minutes, people feel like, oh, this video is so long. I don't want to waste my time, and they'll move on. Right? Does anyone ever think about that way when they're on the Internet? I do. That's the world we live in, guys. We want things quickly. We want them now. We want impressive beginnings all the time, one after another, a new impressive beginning after another one, and, and another one, and another one. And we don't think about the long haul. We don't live for the long haul. We want impressive beginnings now. We want the perfect job now, the perfect family now, the perfect spouse now, the next promotion now, the perfect house now, the best spiritual experience now, the perfect church now, or at least in the next 59 seconds. But life doesn't work that way. Success is measured by years and decades and a lifetime. And it takes that much time. It takes devotion. It takes hard work. It takes faithfulness over the long haul. First impressions don't matter as much as final impressions. We need to live with that in mind. Thinking over the long haul. Thinking it's what matters over the long haul. And we need to apply it to our lives. We need to apply it to church because we bring that mentality into church. The, the average tenure of a pastor, so the average amount of time a pastor is in any given church in the United States is four years. That's average. Four years. It's no better for the average member either. For non-denominational churches, the average tenure for a member is four years as well. Compare that with what went on with the maybe two generations ago now. People joined a church for life, for the most part. The only way they left that church was by going to heaven. That's what tended to happen. People were committed to church over the long haul, and, and they, didn't, they didn't move. They weren't always looking for the next best experience. So in light of this, let, let us think of the long haul. Let's invest in our church over the long haul. And short of heresy or a major move of God or call of God, let's stay here. Let's build here for the long haul. Let's think of not only impressive beginnings, but impressive endings. Let us leave this church when we go to be with the Lord and leave this church too, Lord willing, our great-grandchildren. Leave a church that's worthy of the great gospel of grace that we believe and the glorious triune God that we worship. Let's focus on impressive endings as well as impressive beginnings. Second lesson, second observation in the course of Saul's life is the rotten roots. As you turn to the next chapter in the story, chapter 13, you see things change. Some time has gone by, actually. Uh, by this time, it's about 15 years or so later. And things don't look as good anymore. Faults have started to show in, in his life. The rotten roots of, of his soul have, have taken effect. They have come out. They are seen now. They're, they're bearing fruit. And now he's older. He's, uh, he has an adult son. He's no longer commanding a vast Israelite army, but he's trying to hold together a small ragtag group of ill-equipped soldiers against a massive Philistine army. And in this context, we pick up the story. He's told by the prophet Samuel to, to go to Gigal, and that's a, a site of national worship. And he's to meet Samuel there and they're going to offer a sacrifice. They're going to seek the Lord together before any battle. 
So that's what Saul is told to do by Samuel. But Samuel is late in arriving, and Saul panics. And he decides to offer the sacrifice himself. This is a violation of the prophetic word when Old Testament prophets spoke, they spoke as the very words of God. So this is a violation of prophetic words, Old Testament prophetic words, different than New Testament prophecies. Violation of that word, but also a violation of the scriptures. He was not a priest. He could not offer a sacrifice. And so it's a gross violation uh, of these things, but it comes from a heart of panic, a heart of not looking to the Lord, but panic and looking to himself. And he goes ahead and he does this in his self-sufficiency instead of believing God. This is not likely the first thing that he did wrong, by the way. In Scripture, they, it, it'll often feature key points in someone's life, not saying these were the only things they ever did wrong, but to really illustrate that this is part of a long train of development of someone's life. So by this point in time, 15 years later, there's probably been a gradual erosion of his faith, a gradual erosion of his focus on the Lord, a, a gradual decline into self-focus, self-sufficiency, caring about what people think more than what God thinks. That's been going on in his life, and now it shows itself in this bold way at this point in the story. He's confronted by Samuel for doing this, for his gross disobedience, and in the storyline, there's no repentance. There's no true repentance. He's sorry, like he, he's been caught. And he ex has excuses. That's all he has. He doesn't say, you know what, I've sinned against the Lord and I repent. I, I need, you know, I need to take time to repent. There's a lot going on in my life. There's nothing like that. He makes excuses. And then in the storyline, instead of engaging in battle, he hides in caves with his men. He's not trusting God. He's not trusting God to to lead his people against the enemy as God had promised that he would do. Instead, he's hiding. There's not faith there. There's self-preservation going on in his life. And in the storyline in, in chapter 14, it's Jonathan, his son, who steps forward. Jonathan, his son, along with one other man, his armor bearer, is willing to risk his own life, thinking perhaps God will do something miraculous today. I don't care about my life, is basically what Jonathan says. I care about God. I care about his people, so I'm going to risk. My armor bearer and I are going to go, and they, they do this plan where they approach the enemy, a, a whole platoon of soldiers, far outnumbered, 20 to 1. And they just go in thinking, God, we trust God to do something. It's high risk, but full of faith. And God does something that day. God uses Jonathan that day to start uh, a rout of the Philistines, and then the whole Israel army joins in. Because of Jonathan's faith, Jonathan is the, the one who's acting as Saul should have. What happens in the storyline is as the victory continues, then Saul comes out of his cave with his men. And even then, though, exhibits bad judgment. It continues. The next part in the story, the next major failure for Saul is he's commanded to conquer, fight and conquer and annihilate their fierce and ruthless enemies, the Amalekites. They are to leave no survivors. Now, this is something that's rare in Scripture. Occasionally, God calls His people in the Old Testament. There's something that no longer happens. There's no justification now. But there was a time in, when they were conquering the land where, where God would call them to fight against their enemies and annihilate them. Now, that's only the prerogative of God Himself. God has jurisdiction over life and death and judgment, by the way. 
important to understand that. He is the one who determines in his justice, after having exhausted his patience, that it's time for judgment. He gets to do that, and he gets to do it any way he wants, by the way. And as a matter of fact, we will all face that judgment. He gets to judge us. He gets to determine when we die. It's his prerogative. Thank God there's a refuge in Christ for us and his great love. But it is his prerogative. And so he calls Saul to do this, to, to annihilate this ruthless enemy, the Amalekites, and their king. So he's instructed clearly by God to go and do this, to conquer them, to not spare any, anything, not to take any plunder, to, but to just conquer entirely. And he goes and he decides on his own to disobey what he was called to do, to spare the livestock and the costly goods, and even the evil king, Agag, is spared. Everything else, they're glad to destroy, but he keeps the, the, the good, the loot. And Samuel again confronts him, and he makes excuses again. Well, we were doing this because we wanted to offer it in sacrifice. Is what we were, that's why we did this. That's not a sufficient excuse. He was told to annihilate everything. But it looks good. But then he's pressed by Samuel, and he admits, you know, actually I did it because I was afraid of the soldiers. What was he afraid of? Well, he was afraid they'd be upset with him for not taking any plunder. It was a normal thing when you had a military excursion to get plunder from it. And so he cared more about what his men thought than what God thought. As a result of this continued self-focus and faithlessness and this gross disregard for God, matter of fact, before Samuel got there, he had already built a monument for himself in a battle. So not only was he disobeying the word but of God, but he was exalting himself. I'm, I'm the great king. He had done all that. And for all this, for this, this gross disregard for God, he's told by uh, Samuel that his reign will end and not be passed to his sons. And that's effectively the end of his reign. Now, he continues to reign, but he's judged by God at that point, And things only get worse. So what was once a humble, anointed, impressive, and effective young king has become a self-preserving, self-focused, faithless, disobedient, middle-aged failure of a king. Sadly, Saul failed the test of time as he allowed self to reign instead of God. Sin and self became his God. And he lost everything. This is a temptation and test that we all face, by the way. When we read these characters in Scripture, it doesn't help to look at them and think, what a dope. What a failure. That's not how it's intended. We should look at it and think, oh God, I could do the same thing. Or, oh God, I have done the same thing. Help me. Help me. You see, it's the nature of life to test the hearts of people. Life is not easy. Yes, there are good things in life, but over time we face battle after battle, conflict after conflict, disappointment after disappointment, and our weaknesses and our sins get revealed for what they are. We should all understand that. Life will test who we are. When I was a 20-year-old Christian, a fairly new Christian, um, 
I thought I was pretty godly. I thought I was pretty selfless. And probably most of my friends would have agreed, actually, at least to a degree. I was pretty godly. I was pretty happy with my maturity. Then I got married. And in the context of marriage, I started to see how amazingly selfish I can be. In the context of marriage, being called to lay down my life for my wife, to put her interests, her true interests, first, I was confronted with just my selfishness, my sin, my natural impulse to want to please myself first and foremost. And then it got worse. We had kids. First one, then two, then three, then four, and the more we had, the more helpless I felt, and the more aware of my great selfishness and inadequacies. Life tested my first impressions of myself and showed them to be inadequate. Life and relationships in life in particular have a way of doing that. They expose us for who we are. They force us to see ourselves honestly. And isn't that at times why we run from relationships? Why we run from church, perhaps? Genuine relationships in church? Actually, Mark Dever, a pastor and theologian, talks about this. He says this in, it's in a shocking way to get our attention. He says, if you are not a member of the church you regularly attend, you may well be going to hell. I don't mean for a second that you literally have to have your name on a membership card in a church somewhere to go to heaven. I believe in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. At the same time, in the New Testament, it seems that the local church is there to verify or falsify our claims to be Christians. The man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was sleeping with his father's wife thought of himself as a Christian. I don't care how much you cry during singing or preaching. If you do not live a life marked by love toward others, the Bible has no encouragement for you to think that you're a Christian. None. Do you want to know that your new life is real? Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Try to love them. Don't just do it for three weeks. Don't just do it for six months. Do it for years. And I think you'll find, and others will too, whether or not you love God. The truth will show itself. Joining a church won't save you. It's only the death of Christ that saves you. He alone is our righteousness. But if He really is our righteousness, if we really love Him whom we have not seen, it will show itself by us loving those that we do see. Guys, we need the testing that relationships and time bring, that we might see who we really are. And in that place, as we're exposed for who we really are, not left there, but forced to run to the grace of God, forced to run to Jesus. Now, Saul could have done this, by the way. He understood the promises of God. Now, the full revelation of Christ was not known yet, but there was sufficient revelation of the nature of God as a forgiving God. They understood that there was promise of forgiveness through the sacrificial system. They knew that God dwelt with them, that He was good and forgiving. He knew all those things. He knew that there was forgiveness and hope. 
And he could have himself, in the testing of time, said, oh no, I see who I am and how selfish and faithless I can be. Rescue me, God. He could have done that. The tragedy of his life is not that he was tested by struggles and disappointments, successes and failures. We all have those and will face those. But the tragedy of the story is that in the testing, in the exposure, he only hardened himself in his commitment to self and sin. That's the tragedy. Not that he was weak or sinful. We all are. But in that place, he didn't run to God for help and grace. We have grace available to us that's abundant, greater than all of our sin. Christ came and lived a righteous life. He didn't fail. When he was tested, he was only shown to be faithful, humble, loving. He passed the test, and then he gave up that righteous life on the cross for us. So that in Him, through faith in Him, we can be forgiven. His blood was shed to pay for our sins, not His own. His life was given, His righteous life was given to be an acceptable sacrifice to God so that on His behalf, through faith, we can be received and forgiven and given grace. God lovingly yearns that we would run to Christ to find grace so that He can welcome us and give us grace to overcome our sin and weakness. We have grace. So let us live in a way where we press into relationships and we press in together to the reality of the test of time, the reality of how those disappointments affect us so deeply. Let us find those with whom we can expose our lives, the, our spouses if we're married, our close friends in the Lord in the church and elsewhere. Let us live honestly as we're tested with time and bring those things together to the Lord and to grace. That's the remedy for the rotten roots. Sadly, Saul neglected that remedy. And things got worse. Next, the bitter fruit of Saul's life. He had all these opportunities, yet he didn't repent. He unrepentantly ran down the path of self-absorption and destruction. After his repeated failures, actually, David is selected as the next king. And this is a man after God's own heart. Now, David being a man after God's own heart did not mean that David was flawless and sinless. Actually, if you read his life, he had some serious sin in his life. Very, very serious sin. The difference between David and Saul was that David knew how desperately he needed God. And in his worst moments of failure when confronted he was most concerned about his relationship with God not that he didn't care about people but most concerned about his relationship with God most concerned that he would somehow be cut off from God and so he ran to the Lord he ran to the Lord in his grace early on in his life struggles as he was tested he was persecuted by Saul we'll get into that in a moment instead of hardening his heart and and being vindictive against Saul and murdering the king as it seems like he should have as you read the story he cast his heart, his life on the Lord. He sought the Lord. And from that place of struggle, from that place of anguish, from that place of, of laying his life before the Lord, we receive the Psalms. The most beautiful, heartfelt prayers and songs to the Lord 
in sorrow and in victory. About half the Psalms or so come from David's life and come from his struggle and his testing as he ran to God for grace. So as David went through testing and only got better in many ways in his dependence on God, Saul went from bad to worse. Our story in 1 Samuel 18 talks about 17 and 18, the story of David and Goliath, his wonderful victory against Goliath. David as the anointed one uh, is victorious over the enemy. And Saul, who should have been joyful that this great enemy of the Israelites was conquered, instead becomes insanely jealous. We read in 1 Samuel 18, it says, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. David evaded him twice, and then David fled. In Saul's rejection of God, his persistent high-handed disobedience, he suffered judgment from God, and God allowed a, a demon to afflict him. And in that affliction, he was insanely jealous and sought to murder David in those times, either directly or by intrigue lay, later as well. He was paranoid. He was obsessed with David, though David never raised a hand against him. At one point, Saul kills 85 innocent priests merely because he thinks they had conspired with David to evade him. And they knew nothing of what had happened. Killed 85 of them. And then the last terrible act we already read about, the last terrible act of his insanity and darkness is he consults a witch to determine what to do in battle. It's like something out of Macbeth, if you're familiar with the story of Macbeth. His, he seeks witchcraft to know what to do, and, he, and, and it all fails. It comes apart because actually Samuel himself does show up, from what we can tell, and speaks just as he did faithfully. He speaks God's word to Saul and his judgment. And the next day it comes true on the battlefield. The house of Saul is destroyed. It ends in the suicide of Saul and the loss of all his sons. At the end of this long, sad story, there's no hope left for Saul. His self-focus and sin have ravaged him and his reign. And he stands forever as a tragic example of stubborn sin and self-reliance. I wish I could say he stands alone. But he doesn't. History is full of people like Saul. Famous people. Great names I could name and you would know them. History is full of them. But also, personal history is full of them. You and I know people whose lives end tragically. Perhaps we ourselves are one of those 
persons in our life right now in a tragic place should we continue. There are times for me that it seems that there are more Christian leaders who shipwreck than those who finish well. And perhaps just as many Christians that falter and fail and don't come back. It feels like that. I know if you start counting, it's not like that. The majority are faithful and dependent on the Lord and they hang on to Jesus and they make it to the end. The majority do. But these negative examples, both Saul and in our life, they have to, they must have their effect that God would have. They must grant us a sobriety in looking at our lives and the real possibility of becoming another tragic statistic like Saul should we walk the path of Saul. Just this week, I was notified of a good friend. A gifted friend. Very gifted. Pastor. Who had to resign because of persistent, gross moral failure. It, it, it had been going on for years, too. Very impressive young pastor. Now all that lost. Now I trust he knows the Lord and I trust his restoration and his walk with the Lord and in his marriage and family. But his ministry is lost. I can name for you older men, spiritual heroes of mine. At least tarnished by significant shortcomings, if not disqualified by gross failure. And I'm sure you can name people too. We know all too many their stories and the story of Saul should literally scare the hell out of us. That's the lesson. That's the point. To wake us up, to help us to see and to run to the Lord for rescue. To not stay in that place of worry, but to run to the Lord who is fully able to to say, for the story of Saul is followed by the story of David. And David's life is, is a life of one running to the Lord for help. Running to the Lord for grace. Even in terrible failure. He does repent and runs to the Lord and is restored. And does have an eternal dynasty. David knew he needed God. He never stopped running to Him. And then David points to a better king. An even better King, Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, who gave Himself for us, who was victorious and faithful, who died and rose again, that in Him we might have forgiveness and power to say no to self and sin, that we might have a church called, chosen by Him, called together by Him to minister to us, that we might overcome. He Himself is faithful. It says this in Hebrews 7, about Jesus. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession. He is always there for us. He has given His life for us, and He stands by our side to help us. So in these stories, we are to run to Him, this One who is able to save us to the uttermost. He alone can do that. 
He makes all the difference between a tragic life of impressive beginnings and a successful life of impressive endings, as small as they might seem to us. The finish in him is impressive. And so we're not to despair, but to run to Jesus. If we want to avoid the tragedy of Saul and those like him, we're not to look to ourselves. We're not to live in our sin and ourself, but we are instead to run to Christ and find in Him full forgiveness, fresh faith, fresh power to believe and follow and succeed even to our old age. There is a man, a very famous man, who started out life terribly, but finished very well. As a youth, he rejected his mother's faith and lived a dissolute life. Um, he was so bad that the worst characters of the day found him over-the-top repulsive. He engaged in slave trading, sexual promiscuity, witchcraft. But through a series of events, God got his attention. He was born again into new life in Christ. And he went on to become a great Christian leader of the time, of the early 1800s, a major force behind the repeal of slavery and the author of the still-famous song, Amazing Grace. Yep, you guessed it, John Newton. But John Newton's success was not because he himself had some special ability. He never forgot who he was, left to himself. Never forgot that. And remained desperate for Christ all his days. As he grew old, he said something to a young friend right near the end of his life that was very profound. This is what he said. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That's all the difference between a life like Saul and a life like Newton's. So as we close this morning, let me ask how it will end for you and me. Are we going to follow the path of Self-reliance, selfishness, and sin through the test of time, like Saul and shipwreck? Or are we going to, like Newton, ever remember two things most importantly? I'm a great, very great sinner, but even more importantly, Christ is a very great Savior. Let us learn from this tragedy and run to Christ. And in that place of depending on Christ, finished successfully and, Lord willing, pass the baton not only to our children or grandchildren, but God's grace, even our great-grandchildren, because of the grace of Christ. Let's pray.